0: Welcome to Inspirational Journeys, Stories That Matter. This is a place where authors, creative artists, and entrepreneurs can share the story behind their process. You will also hear solo episodes where I give writing tips, inspiration, encouragement, and lessons I've learned throughout my writing journey, all inspired by the Holy Spirit. Grab a cup of your favorite beverage. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. And don't forget to visit my website at www.annewritesinspiration.com. Thanks for supporting my Inspirational Journeys podcast. My purpose is to provide a platform for authors, creative artists, and entrepreneurs to share their stories while also providing writing tips, encouragement, and inspiration to help you achieve your writing goals through faith and courage. By clicking the support this podcast button or following the link in my show notes, your monthly contribution of 99 cents, 4.99, or 9.99 will help me achieve mine. inspirational journeys everyone my name is Ann Harrison and today I'm proud to introduce my special guest uh, Dr. Linville M. Meadows Um, but before we get started I do want to remind you if you're watching this on YouTube to go and subscribe to the channel hit the notification bell so that you don't miss another video and do like the video and share it with your friends. If you're listening on the podcast be sure to subscribe so that you get my You get notified every time I post a new episode. Welcome to the show, Lynn.
1: Thank you, Ann. It's a real joy to be here today.
0: It's a joy to have you on the show, and especially since we started talking before we got started recording. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, um, uh, I'm a retired oncologist. I used to take care of cancer patients. Uh, I'm a recovering addict and alcoholic. Uh, which means I don't drink anymore, and I try to find a way to lead a better life. Uh, I um, uh, was a, uh, grew up in Florida. I went to uh, University at Duke. I went to UNC Medical School, which is eight miles down the road. I did my house staff and and oncology training at Duke, and then went back to UNC where I was on the faculty for a while. Back when I was uh, a young person, I'm a child of the 60s, and, uh, we, we spent time trying to enlarge our consciousness and we used all different manner of drugs to do that. I don't think that we ever really did enlarge our consciousness and, and after a while we just did it to get stoned. Um, but when I went to school, I did, didn't really have the time or the inclination to, to, to be involved in, in drugs and alcohol. Uh, I went through all that, those years of training and and I actually had a really good time. I'm I'm a perpetual student. When I was on the faculty at the medical center, we would have these recruiting dinners and my boss was very much into into really good white, really good red wines. And so I, we would have a glass of wine with with dinner and I discovered that the glass of wine gave me the same buzz that the um, pot used to do. Pot was my favorite of course. And, uh, that began the slow and very slippery and completely unnoticeable slide into alcoholism. A glass of wine at dinner became two. I mean, after all this work that I, that I'd gone through, all this study, I, I, was entitled to the good life, wasn't I? And, um, uh, so, so it seemed like a, a perfect thing to do to have wine. And I didn't, I never realized it. it slid from one glass to two glasses of wine every night. To a bottle of wine every night to two bottles of wine every night, and I wouldn't leave home without carrying two bottles of wine with me and a corkscrew. It got to the point where I wouldn't stop at a restaurant for lunch unless they had a wine list. Okay, that's getting pretty bad. Mm. Now, um, I was also addicted to cocaine, and it was a party favor for a long time, until suddenly, it wasn't a party favor anymore. Um, uh, I guess you, I guess you you could say that uh, uh, I'd never realized when when all this was happening. Uh, after a while, though, there's there's this there's this invisible line that you cross, uh, where you go from being someone who uses a lot to someone who is actually. Uh, a full-blown addict or alcoholic. I like to use the term addict to cover both because basically I'm addicted to alcohol as my drug and I'm addicted to cocaine as my other drug. Um, there's, there's an invisible line that you cross over where you go from being uh, someone who uses a lot or drinks a lot but can stop whenever they want. When you cross this invisible line, something happens to your body where no longer do you have the choice. Once across that line, I take one drink and I can't stop. It triggers something inside me. I can't stop until either I pass out or we run out of get highs. The other thing that happens is I, I develop this um, terrible craving that comes on out of the clear blue sky. I'll suddenly decide that I have to have a drug, my drug of choice and I can't stop until I get it. And then when the first, first line, the first hit, the first, the first drink goes in, uh, there is no stopping me. Now the, the, and you, can't, you can never go back across that line to being uh, uh, someone who uses a lot of drugs but really isn't addicted. The old timers like to say that a, grape can, that a raisin can never go back to being a grape. That a pickle can never go back to being a cucumber once you cross that line that 's the end of it you have completely lost the power of choice over drugs and alcohol the, the same it, it's very much like diabetes in in many ways uh, you can you can develop, inherit a tendency to diabetes but that doesn 't mean you 'll ever get it you can eat a lot of sugar but that doesn't make you a diabetic okay um, well there is an invisible line that someplace I cross over where all of a sudden I'm a diabetic, and I don't—I'm not a potential diabetic where I can eat sugar anytime I want. Once I cross over that line into diabetes, um, if I eat any kind of pies or cakes, my blood sugar is going to go up, and it doesn't matter how well I take care of it. For 20 years, once I start eating pies or cakes again, my blood sugar is going to go right back up. I can never go back from being a diabetic to being a pre-diabetic, where I can have a slice of cake without consequences. And so addiction is, is very much like that. Um, it's chronic, it's relapsing, and uh, untreated, it's uniformly fatal, regardless of the kind of, of what you might be addicted to. I can be addicted to many things. They, they say, if I can do it twice and it doesn't kill me, I can become addicted to it. When a, when a person crosses that line, maybe they only drank um, alcohol, once across that line, I become susceptible to any get high you can name. So, uh, if if I were if I were an alcoholic, I personally I'm a wino. But as a wino, once I cross that line, any kind of uh, uh, addictive drug will hit me and take me away. Um, there's the story of of a famous actor who had been clean and sober from from um, alcohol for like 20 years and one day he suddenly decided you want to have a glass of wine with dinner and the next thing you know they find him dead with a syringe and his syringe full of hair in his in his arm where he had overlat where he had overdosed so that so that one one uh, crossing the line that one is now susceptible to everything in fact, uh, when I go to have a procedure done of some kind, medical procedure, I tell them I cannot take benzodiazepines, I cannot take narcotics because either of those can, can trigger a relapse. I had a, one, of my, one of my first psychiatrists was a really nice uh, lady who went in the hospital once. She was actually had been a heroin addict um, Believe it or not, while she was in medical school, and she'd been clean and sober from heroin for over 15 years. And she went into the hospital to have her gallbladder taken out. And they gave her a morphine pump where you push a little button and it gives you a dose of morphine. Mm-hmm. And they left it on her a day too long. And she kept pushing it until she actually relapsed off of the medicine that had been, had been prescribed by her, by her kind physicians. So there's a, there's a danger there. You have to actually be an advocate your own sobriety
0: Wow that's amazing so I would ask you what inspired you to become a writer but uh, let's take it one step further what inspired you to write this book
1: well two things one was when I was in college I was I was really um, in love with uh, being a writer and and uh, I was an English major and then, then I hit my first episode of bipolar disease and I ended up flunking out of college. And I ended up going, going back to, to school, uh, taking zoology and biology and, um, biochemistry type courses so I could get into medical school. Cause I'd been, uh, I was, I liked sciences as much as I liked literature. Um, the reason I decided to write this book, um, Sorry. Huh? I am so sorry. My phone
0: was, my phone's, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: The reason I decided to write this book um, was that when I was in in rehab, one of the things that I learned, much to my surprise, was that prayer actually works. As a scientist and a physician, people um, don't talk about higher powers or prayer or anything like that. It's easier to talk about your mistress when you're working in the emergency room than it is to talk about God. Uh, So when I came to to rehab, they said, uh, uh, you have to learn how to pray. I said, wait, 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 wait. I'm not sure I even believe in God. Um, uh, and I certainly don't know how to pray. And they said, that doesn't matter, just do what we tell you. And uh, so I got to where I would pray at night and ask questions. Um, uh, one, one night I, I prayed and asked the question, how, what am I supposed to do when I get out of here? Because I was pretty sure I didn't wanna go back to medicine because medicine in many ways uh, fed into my addiction. And, and the next morning, I, I woke up, and there were two words sitting on my belly, look staring me in the face, and they were, live free. All right. Well, how do you live free? I mean, like I said, I'm an old hippie, so free love, free sex, free dope, that kind of stuff, that, that didn't work. It couldn't possibly be that. So a couple weeks later, I prayed again. What am I supposed to do when I get out of here? And the next morning, there were two words sitting uh, on my belly, and they were to live freely. And it took me two years to figure out what that meant. It means to live for your fear, which is absolutely one of the most important things in terms of having a happy uh, life that's filled with serenity and peace and joy, is to overcome all the fear in your life. Another time I prayed and I said, well, what am I, I said the same question again, what am I supposed to do when I get out of here? And the next morning, I got this message sitting uh, for So sometimes I get words on it on my stomach, staring up at me, <laughs> you know? um, And And it was, tell our story, okay? So um, I began working on it a long time ago, um, uh, but it's taken me a long time to actually write it for a number of reasons. And I put together all the stories that I had heard, and I put together all the lessons that I had learned, and, and then I took and uh, built them into the form of a memoir so that there's very personal stuff in it, but it's also a, a, a sort of a textbook, a guidebook to learn about the disease of addiction and to learn what I can do about it. And it's almost a step-by-step approach, at least that's the way I, I put it. And I took the stories that I had heard and the lessons that I had learned and put them into the mouths of the, of the, of the men and women that were around me as we went through rehab. And then um, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine, who was one of the few people that I still uh, keep up with out of rehab, and I were talking, and and he's a um, a personal coach, uh, and he's really good at it. And he said, uh, Lynn, if you're not going to do this now, when are you going to do it? And I went, you know, I think you're right. So I just i made it I made a decision I made a choice that I'm going to go ahead and and finish writing it I'm going to um, go ahead and publish it and I'm going to work on the uh, promotion of the book and, until you know to give it to give it a year basically a year and a half of working on it to some degree every day and that's mm-hmm. what I've been doing since last March right so the pandemic didn't hurt me, and it made it much easier to concentrate actually
0: probably did <laughs> I can understand that. And are you talking about because I've I've, I've read your stories and uh, I can tell you're a great storyteller because that's what kept me interested in it. It was not like it was not textbookish. Right. It was totally. So are you talking about Mike, who you first met?
1: Yes, of course, it's Mike. Now, all the names are not the same.
0: Oh, I know that, but.
1: And I took, sometimes I took two people that I knew and I combined them into one character. Oh, Um, yeah. Jane is a, is, a, is a person in my mind. I've never met her, all right? But, but she jumped in my head so clearly that, that I had to put her in there. Uh, she represents the uh, very strict uh, approach to recovery where you need, must follow these rules very keenly. And she was very, uh, she had a fund of knowledge that, that was uh, uh, essential to, to really finding uh, a decent recovery. When I talk about recovery, um, what I mean is, is that I think there are stages in one's journey uh, to, to get rid of drugs and alcohol. The first stage is simply to quit drinking or smoking or using. And I call that abstinence because you're not using. And that's, that's good. That's better than using. But if, you, if a person doesn't approach the underlying problems of addiction, they're not going to get very far. As a disease, addiction affects the mind and the body and the spirit. And what, whatever type of treatment you apply has got to address all three of these. So, if I just quit drinking, my mind will clear up to some degree. Um, the effects, the toxic effects of the drugs and alcohol, will eventually leave the body. Some effects are permanent, like cirrhosis or or uh, brain damage or any number of things, and those may never clear up. The body itself will will Uh, will get better once you remove the poison. The brain, the mind will will take a lot longer uh, to relearn uh, how to live uh, uh, but you also have to address the problems of the spirit which is to say um, uh, I over time gave up all of my closely held altruistic moral principles because they got in the way of my using. If if it was uh, should I (laughs) Should should I pay the rent, which is 300 bucks, or should I, go, should I go buy a whole big thing of cocaine and pot and party all night? Well, the decision, it, any normal person would say, pay the rent, idiot. But once that addiction comes, um, there is no choice. You go and you buy the dope, okay? And over time, I found that I gave up essentially all of the moral principles, all of the altruism that led me to be a physician in the first place. Um... Uh, I gave up my professional values any time that they got between me and my youth. So that, that has to be addressed. And, and it, it, what it requires is that I develop a whole new way of looking at the world, a whole new way of thinking, which leads to a whole new way of behaving. You have talked about being born again. Well, that's exactly what this is. It's, it's being born again in a different sense than, than many Christians would use the word, but it's nonetheless the same thing. It's a complete rearrangement of, of everything that I hold dear, the or I used to hold dear when I was using. When I got into rehab, they told me, everything you think you know is wrong. Not how to drive from Atlanta to, um, to Rochelle, or from Rochelle to Jacksonville, or how to change a tire. Mm-hmm. But everything you know about behaving, and thinking has been completely messed up by your drinking and using. Um, and so you, I, had, I had to learn a, a new way of, of looking at the world. They said you have to find a higher power. And by that they meant some sort of higher power that I could relate to, not what the preacher related to or what the priest told me or what the rabbi told me that how they thought the world was, was ordered but I had to find it out for myself. And mm. they, gave us, they gave us a worksheet, all right? And if you're going to define a higher power that you can relate to, um, what would it be? And these two words popped into my head and they were uh, unconditional love. And that's not a term that I had, I had heard only once, I don't heard it once in my life, almost 20 years before. But if you start out with the idea that the, that the universe is based on the principle of unconditional love, then a whole lot of things come out of it. Um, uh, I am beloved of, by my higher power. Um, I The things that I possess that, that make me in the image of my higher power are stuff like honesty, kindness, creativity, compassion. That's who I am. And the using basically kept all these good things from, from coming, uh, from the universe, from God, from however you, whatever word you want to use, into me and out through me into the world. Um, the uh, Buddhists like to use the term dharma, d-h-a-r-m-a and the saying is to follow your dharma, all right? <clears throat> in the, in the, in the Buddhist literature, that dharma is the underlying nature of the universe. It is, um, the, the laws, the principles that necessarily derived from the way the universe, from the way existence is structured. It's how I relate to those laws and those ideas, how I behave in the world based on those ideas. And it's the results that I produce in the world based on those behaviors. Um, the other way of saying that, which is an AA saying is let go and let God, which is that I have to move my ego out of the way and let the universe flow through me. And when I do that, then that's where inspiration comes from. When I'm writing something and I get stuck, I close my eyes and I just move the ego a bit and sit back and then I open my eyes and I just, I'm off writing again, just that quickly by moving my ego out of the way. Let go Mm -hmm. and let God. Um, uh, Joseph Campbell said you should follow your bliss. Um, And what he meant by that was was follow this pathway, right? Uh, Mike, the the guy that is very prominent in the book, once told me... um, uh, told it to me another way. Uh, he said, um, um, uh, you are a child of God, and your job in this life is to bring God's love into the world. And that's, it's three different um, uh, ways of saying the same thing. So that what, what I got out of, out of seeing these different things like that was that spiritual truth is where you find it well right. uh, if you trace back I did a lot of study of the Eastern religions and other religions and the same principles are there it's just that that men in search of power and prestige and and position have have altered the word um, uh, into into something that helps them with with their ideas of, of how they should rule the world um, and it's happened every time I think you can you can see it in in um, uh, Uh, any, any number of sources. Buddhism, uh, Buddha didn't want to be treated as a, as some kind of prophet or anything, yet you go by a statue of the Buddha and you rub his belly because that's, you know, um, in Tibet they have prayer flags and prayer wheels to pray to the Buddha. Well, Buddha wasn't a, wasn't some higher power or something. He was just a sage who, who discovered something and shared it with the world. Uh, you can make the same argument for, for the Christian religion that that somehow <clears throat> if you're, if you were born without Jesus saving you, you must go to hell. Well, that, or go to a limbo or something. But see, that doesn't fit with the idea of unconditional love. Jesus said, it is not my father's will that even one of these little ones should be lost. All right? You have one daughter, right Sharon? Yeah, I have, yeah. I have four kids. And let's say I'm, I'm God today, and I have to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Which of my two daughters am I gonna to send to hell? Well, the answer is none of them. Jesus said that if you, if, that, that if you love your children a lot, if, he, if your child asks for a loaf of bread, will you give him a stone? No. And then he says, and your father in heaven, if you are imperfect, how much more must your father in heaven love you and want to give you the kingdom? And it's only me that stands in the way of happening of letting that love flow through me and into the world. And one of the things that's, is that the more I learn to do that, the better life becomes in every way that you can think of. Um, one day, my wife and I were going into town and we had a list of about six stops we wanted to make and one of them you had to be there before two and one didn't open till 1 and this one was on one side of town and that was on the other side of town and she's starting to get all all bound up in in all these things she had to do and her she was she was developing a um a, a perfect snit and so i took a piece of i took a, a napkin and i covered up the clock on the car all right, and just proceeded without any knowledge of the clock, and let the universe guide us through the through the details of the day, and we hit everything on time and got everything absolutely done perfectly. All right, and that's the simple example. Um, my my kids, uh, my son would go into a parking lot and, and looking for a parking space, and he would go, rah, 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 I'll never find a parking space, and he didn't. But my daughter on the other hand, we'll go into the into the parking lot and she would start singing, I'm going to find a parking place, I'm going to find a parking place, and she always found a place up right near the door where she wanted to you go say in. You say
0: you're not going to do it is when it's not going to happen, but if you say you're going to do something, then that's when it happens.
1: Yes, if I, I block the, that flow through my ego and through the fear that feeds the ego, um, um, the more I believe that something is going to happen. The more I put my attention into to something, the, the more likely it is to work, which is really kind of kind of interesting. And I and I wouldn't have, have certainly wouldn't have considered that in the past. But whatever I focus my attention on, I actually bring to me. All right. If I focus my attention on getting into medical school, I do the necessary things, I keep it in front of me, and I draw it to me. And this guy who flunked out of school, um, uh, spent years trying to get himself back together, ends up in medical school and graduates with honors because I let it happen. Mm-hmm. I can remember thinking that that when I decided to go back to school, I had a year, almost two years of undergraduate work and I had absolutely no money. And I calculated how much child support it would take for me to, just, just to get through undergraduate school, Not, nothing about medical school, it was like, um, $12,000. Or at that point in my life, I never even had $1,000 to, in, in, um, in my bank. But I said, no, I'm going to do it anyway, without any idea of how to do it. And it worked out. I mean, I'm living proof of that. The more you believe in um, the thoughts that you put out into the world, the more likely they are to come back to you. All right. Throw your bread on the waters and it will come back to you after many days. Throw my thoughts out into the ether, out into the universe. How do you understand about it? And they big will- yellow,
0: Big oh. yellow buttery balls of love.
1: Yes, <laughs> that works. That <laughs> works. Yeah, yeah, great big yellow buttery balls of love is an idea that came to me. If I'm having trouble with somebody, like for example my mother-in-law, and I know that when I go over to see her for Sunday dinner, she's just going to give me a hard time. I mean, you know. So when I get down, when I dr- pull up and close to the driveway, I will, I will think of this great uh, uh, yellow ball about the size of a beach ball, right, mm-hmm. it's covered in yellow buttery love, and it's just dripping with love, and I rear back and throw it, all right, and it's, it's like a cruise, missile. It doesn't have to know where to go. It figures it out all by itself, and then I saw my mother-in-law standing there in her kitchen, and it smacked her right on top of the head, and all this gooey, yellow, buttery love just pours down all over her, and it <laughs> makes me laugh, and that's what breaks the spell of the negativity in my head, and um, when I go inside, I can tell you that uh, the, the that what happens will go better than it would have otherwise. Now, what am I actually doing here? All right. What I am doing is I am sending God's blessing to this person. That's all that it is. It's just in a form that I can use it easily without trying to sound too pious. Okay. I I had a a friend. He well really, he's sort of a friend who was in really bad shape. He had PTSD and all other kind of things, and uh, he was having trouble with his parents. And so I gave him this tool to use. And I didn't hear from him for a couple of years. And he called me and he was going into a, into a um, nursing home because he had developed this weird, unusual uh, neurologic thing where he was losing control of his arms and legs and his speech and mm-hmm. he only, only had a few months left to live. And he called me because he wanted to tell me that every time he felt bad, he thought about those great big yellow buttery balls of love and it made him feel better, okay?
0: That just made me laugh because I could see that.
1: Mm-hmm. In my head. <laughs> yeah. And I've used it many times, and it always works. It may oh, not work God. like right away, but it's like throw your bread on the waters. And after some time, you can't, you, the universe doesn't operate on my time, you
0: know. No, God's time is not our time. Yes, I can exactly. tell you that. I think, it's, I think it's a day is a thousand years, according I to God's time. I don't, just, I don't know but i, uh, I can't
1: request something and say i want it by tomorrow five o'clock nope
0: you know? it doesn't work, doesn't work that work. way
1: that work.
0: <laughs> and i like the fact that you said take bait that, that in and when you were talking about in your in your book about recovery um you have to take baby steps i see that in every aspect of life yes anytime you learn something new whatever you still have to take those baby steps and i was going to ask you how long were you in how long were you in rehab? I know you mentioned six months at
1: one point. It was almost eight months. Normally for physicians, when you go to a rehab, it's a place that's designed especially for doctors and nurses and, you know, um, uh, because, because their problems are much different than, um, uh, than a normal person. Um, for example, it takes me a month to figure out that I'm not the doctor anymore. Now I'm the patient. The arrogance that, that we bring with us is immense. You know? um, it's not that doctors think they are God. They are God. <laughs> um, and so you have to get through a lot of that stuff before you can even get to a point where you can, can receive the treatment. And the treatment is the same for everybody because the disease is the same. The disease is very democratic. It doesn't care where you were born. It doesn't care how much money your daddy has, what car you drive or where you get to school or what you do for a living. You could be a dock worker or a waitress or a high school coach. It doesn't matter. 10% of the general population has the seeds to become addicted to something and have it overwhelm them. Uh, and that includes 10% of all physicians, okay? Uh, the thing about being a physician that's who's addicted, you can't tell anybody because you would lose your medical license. You can't share your problems with anybody because they'll think you're less than, okay? So that you you get involved, that you become more and more isolated as, as you as you get deeper and deeper into, into your addiction. Uh, and you cannot ask for help. That's You would just never consider doing that.
0: Mm-mm-mm-mm. That sounds rough.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's fatal. It's a fatal disease. Right. I can, I can remember thinking um, uh, that, that I was, that I, was uh, I was living in a house. It was very expensive, driving a brand new car, all kind of the kind of material things around me. And I knew that I was going to die chasing the dope man down a dark alley someplace. All right? that, that I was never going to be able to quit the cocaine and some days I I wanted passionately to quit, and some days I just didn't care, but I knew that everything that I'd worked for was going down the tubes, and I just didn't care. You reach a point where it becomes either quit or die, And and that's where I was. I wouldn't have been able to do it though, because I couldn't help. The thing of it is you can't help yourself. You can't pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and get sober. Because it affects uh, all three aspects of, of a human being, um, you can't think yourself into sobriety because that won't help with any of the other things that are going on. Um,
0: and as you set your character set in your book, your thinker's broken.
1: Yes, yes. Um, by the time I get to to rehab, my thinker is broken, which means to say that that uh, it made perfectly good sense to drive down the highway at 65 miles an hour with a needle in my arm shooting up cocaine. That sounded p- completely normal at the time. Well, that's not normal. Okay. Um, um, it it affects my my filter. We all have, have filters that help us uh, uh, get rid of the noise. For example, the, um, the mm-hmm. noise in a restaurant, the sirens outside the window, that we filter those out. Um, but, but I adapted my filter so, so that it filtered out anything that might come between me and my using. For example, the, the judge says, you're an alcoholic, you got to quit. And I go, yeah, sure. Okay, well, maybe not. Um, and, and it filters out anything that would come between me and my using. And the last part is that I have an overactive forgetter. Okay. So if if it gets through my filter somehow, I can immediately forget what it is and just go on about my business. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, between the three of those, um, they're, they're all basically forms of denial where I deny that I'm sick. Um, and I, and I deny the effects that my, my using is having on the people around me. Um, and I I deny that what's happening to my body and my life um denial is a useful thing i have have, i can remember a patient who was dying of cancer Uh, he'd gone through surgery radiation a couple rounds of chemo and he was literally uh, days to weeks away from dying and he, he was all he could do to get from the wheelchair up to the up to the exam table and yet we would talk uh and he said i remember he says Doc, when we get through with all of this, I'm going to go to Jamaica for a couple of weeks and lay out in the, in the sun and enjoy the beach and the water. Knowing full, full tilted, he couldn't even, couldn't even hardly get in the car. So that was not going to happen. Yeah. When we're overcome with stuff that we really have trouble dealing with. Denial is a useful mechanism. So he was using denial to make it possible for him to get up, take his medicines, put on his pants, shave, all that kind of stuff. But as addicts and alcoholics, uh, denial is poison for us because it prevents us from seeing what's happening to us and what we're doing to the people around us.
0: Mm, Wow! Yeah, there were some definitely some parts of the book that I definitely that stuck in my mind. You you definitely, and you gave me a glimpse of what people go through. Do you have first of all? Do you have any tips for, for other uh, listeners out there who Either I don't know if they may be suffering from that or they know somebody who's suffering from it. Do you have any uh, a word of advice.
1: Well, a lot of words of advice. The, the first and perhaps most important thing is that no one is going to go through the process of completely changing everything they know unless they're pushed to the wall. You cannot tell somebody they're an alcoholic and expect them to change because of that. You cannot list all the problems that they have or how bad they've hurt other people around them, their wives, their children, um, their coworkers, and expect that to have an, an impact on them. A person must be ready to quit before they will be able to quit. They have to have a desire to, to change their lives that's just as strong as a desire that, that they had to, 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 to get wasted. So that you can't expect somebody just because they're they're addicted and they're in trouble they're living off on the street you can't pull them in and say you're going to go to rehab and that's going to fix you because it won't until somebody is ready to start until they've reached that bottom the quit or die point uh you can talk to them until you're blue in the face and send them to rehab 50 times it's not going to make a difference that's the that's the key um you have to want to change and you can't the other thing is you can't do it by yourself For some reason, uh, we just don't have the capacity to change our thinking and our behavior and to clear the mind of all the poisons that are there. We simply can't do it by um, uh, ourselves. I can remember uh, when my nurses figured out that I I was in trouble and and they figured out what it was and they said, go home, doc, We'll, we'll, uh, we'll take care of this for you. And so I knew when I came to work the next day, it was going to be the end of the world. The medical police were going to be there with their shiny badges, and they're going to put me in handcuffs and take me away, take my medical license off the wall and lock me up forever. Well, that didn't happen. It turns out that that in North Carolina, where I was, um, there's a thing called the Physician's Recovery Network. And what they do is they they in- intercede between you and the medical board, uh, realizing that, you ha- that you're an impaired physician. And then they send you to a place where you can get the Physician-specific rehab, like I talked about before. Mm-hmm. So when I got there, and that way, you're if you complete the program, then uh, you don't lose your license. But if you don't, that's it. You're they they give your name to the board and you're out. So that that next morning, when I when I went to work, um, I met this guy called Paul. Right? Um he he was he did not have handcuffs or a badge. He was dressed in regular clothes, and he gave me this strange strange grin. Which I thought was really bizarre. Uh, it turns out he was in his own personal form of serenity that, he, that he'd he gotten out of his recovery. And um, he gave me a hug. And I thought, what kind of weirdos this gives hugs, you know, people they don't know. And he said, he said, Lynn, do you have a problem? And I had what they call a moment of clarity. And I simply said, yes. And he said, do you want to do something about it? And You know, you would think that in medical school, they would have some course on addiction and stuff like that, but, but they don't, there was nothing absolutely at all. We learned about the consequences of alcohol, cirrhosis, cardiomyopathy, all the other things that alcohol can do to the body, but absolutely nothing about how to treat the disease itself. So I said, yes, I want to do something about it, but I have no idea. I had no idea what he was talking about. So he put me in his car and he took me to detox uh, and I was there for four days. And then they sent me from there, um, out to rehab. Now, in the years that I've had this wonderful sobriety and this wonderful recovery, I've had many people like Paul come up to me and help me. That I reached out for help and they took my hand and pulled me up a little bit, a little bit further. So there've been dozens and dozens of those. And I don't remember their names, but I certainly remember Paul. And it's for, it's for, I owe these people, I owe Paul and other, all the other people who reached out to me, I owe them a debt um, b- because they basically saved my life when I was dying. And so the reason to write the book is, besides being told to write our story, the reason to write that book is to repay some of the debt that I owe to those people <clears throat> who saved my life. Um, uh, and I'm never going to make any money off the book um, but as an ebook, I can give it away to anybody who wants it. The idea is is to carry the message that That living by spiritual principles will solve all of my problems. I was at, a, at uh, an AA meeting with my friend Robert And we were talking about why we still went to AA meetings and one of the reasons that, 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 that I would go would be because I, I know all the people in that room they all have been in the same place. We have all sat in the same chair being scared to death and not knowing what to do. Uh, you, it's the one place in life where I don't have to wear a mask. They all know what I am. They all know where I came from. And we're all the same and we're there to help each other. Um, uh, another thing I discovered um, quite uh, unexpectedly is that when my thinking gets all tangled up, when I go to a meeting and take a, take a, a big grab of, of, of what's in the room, the, co- the commonality, <clears throat> it straightens out my thinking. And then Robert spoke and he said, well, I come to meetings to carry the message. Well, the message is not don't drink. All right, the, because, because um, not drinking is just being abstinent. Um, I'm just a dry drunk. It has to be more than that. And it suddenly occurred to me that the real message that we carry is that living by spiritual principles will solve all of our problems, not just in life, but, but especially our addiction. Right? Once I do that, my addiction has no chance of penetrating um, uh, my serenity to, to pull me down again. And what are what are the spiritual principles that we're talking about? Not some kind of pie in the sky, cherubs playing harps and... and uh, white horses are, are pulling golden chariots through the sky and that kind of stuff. No, I'm talking about things that are practical and I can use every day in my life. Things like honesty, kindness, compassion. Um, those ideas, when I, when I put them in my head, when I, when I focus my attention on them, they become stronger and stronger inside me. And then it becomes easier and easier to, as Mike said, um, bring God's love into the world. And as the Buddhists say, follow your Dharma. And as Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss. Um, And it makes all the difference in the world. Uh, I would never have believed it. Mm.
0: So are you working on, as far as your writing, are you working on anything else new?
1: Well, I have a... um, Another book that I'm working on, it's only titled New Book at the moment, where I take the ideas that we've talked about, what is dharma, what is unconditional love, and just simply working through them in a form that, 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 that um, writes down and organizes all these different scattered thoughts. I have three novels that are sitting and waiting waiting for me to go back to them. Um, oh, okay. One of them is called A Madness of the Heart, and it's about... A, a young man who has—he's uh, obsessive compulsive, and he obsesses on women. All right, and he—he's a good guy. He was—he was, he was a, an English major and, uh, uh, and very smart guy. Um, uh, and he he obsesses on this one woman, um, and and he just lets the obsession run his life. Um, he eventually ends up chasing her to Honduras of all places, because this woman is, is it, Lucy is her name. And she has, she was always a sort of far left um, girl. And and uh, she actually went to Cuba and learned from uh, from those guys how to be a revolutionary. So he hears that she's in Honduras and he goes to try to find her. And he gets deeper and deeper into the jungle. And the deeper he gets into the jungle, the more insane he becomes. The darkness, the, the evil, the pure evil of the jungle overwhelms him completely all right and he, he much like the heart of darkness he, he gets he discovers the the deepness and the darkness and the blackness and the monster within himself um and he escapes with his life but not much else
0: wow so you're gonna have to let me know when you get one of these novels published <laughs> uh, when you do a new book so we so we can have you back on the show to talk about some of your other writing uh and i do appreciate you sharing your Um, your recovery story because you know it's one of those a story of hope. Yes. Yes. And
1: it has to. I go into a room and I and I'm afraid, I don't believe I'm like these guys at all, and I don't want to be there. And then somebody gets up and tells my story, just as if I had written down the things that happened to to me and handed it to him, and he'd read them out loud. So this guy who I've never met before knows exactly what happened to me. And then I think, well, I can trust this guy, right? And once I learn to trust this guy, and I see that he's doing pretty good a few months or a year down the road, then I hope I find hope that in fact something good could happen to me. And so trust leads to hope, and hope leads to to um, uh, uh, opens the door to the pathway of recovery. Hope is essential, And I don't have it when I'm using. I am completely hopeless. A hopeless state of mind and body is like.
0: So, do you have any advice for aspiring authors out there?
1: Um, it's not for me to tell people what to do. What I The one thing that I've discovered is that the more I get my ego out of the way, the more um, the inspiration that's within me comes out. And... I don't come up with the words. They flow through me and I write them down as fast as I can. And my job then later is to go back and edit out the mistakes I made in my transcription. All right. So if I let that flow through me, rather than use my mind to try to figure out how this is supposed to happen, it goes much better. And the other thing is that you have to have a structure within your um, uh, stories in order to, 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 to support the, the things that happen. That's not to say that you plot out every detail or anything or to take away your creativity, but you need to know that in chapter one, he, this happens. You need to know in chapter two, he, here's how he gets us to, to part three and here's what happens in, in part three. As uh, Plato said, a story has a has three parts, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And structure is, 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 is really essential if you're gonna, gonna be able to tell a story that doesn't fall apart.
0: Right. That's why I like using the snowflake method because it helps me. I don't plot out every single detail, but it helps me keep track of the, um, the, the story structure, the types of scenes, the characters, all that good stuff.
1: Yeah. I'm still learning about dialogue and how to make a character that's real. Yeah. most real character I've ever, I've ever made up.
0: Wow. So, um, where can people find you online?
1: I have two websites. One is called A Spiritual Pathway to Recovery, and that talks about the book. It talks about me. My blog site is also at that, at that location. Um, I'm on social media in a lot of different places, usually as either Linville Meadows or as The Answer is Recovery. Um, I have another website that's devoted to understanding the disease of addiction and understanding the treatment, how to guard against relapse, stuff like that. And it's called um, The Answer is Recovery. When Mike and I would sit around and, and talk, we would, we would say, uh, one of us would say, what's the problem? And then the other would say, the problem is addiction. And then, then, then um, he would say, "But well, what's the answer? And the answer is recovery. And that's where that title comes from. The problem is addiction. The answer is recovery.
0: Okay. So we challenge you to go out there and read to get inspired, write something inspiring, and share your creation with the world. For when you've touched one life, you've touched thousands. Thanks for joining us on Inspirational Journeys and have a blessed day, everyone. Hey authors, are you looking for a tool to help you polish your book manuscripts, essays, short stories, and more? Look no further than Pro Writing Aid. Pro Writing Aid is an editing software that checks grammar, dialogue, Sticky sentences, style, and more. Click the link in my show notes to save 20% off your Pro Writing Aid subscription purchase. Happy writing! Now that you've found me on the Inspirational Journeys podcast, I challenge you to go over to where ebooks are sold and find me there. My book, The Spirit of Creativity Inspirational Poems for the Creative at Heart, is now available in ebook formats and on Audible, and will soon be available on Amazon and Apple Books. The Universal link and the Audible link are available in my show notes. Thank you for listening to Inspirational Journeys. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this audio sample.
2: The Flow of Words. Words flow like raindrops on a summer day, though sometimes they fly far, far away, like unexpected scenes across the movie screen of my mind. Drifting like a waterfall, my characters, they tell me all the things I need to know for stories that I so long to tell. It's my job to capture the words I hold so dear before they disappear to leave me far behind. If I don't take my pen and write these nuggets down, slipping through my hands, they flutter to the ground, like pennies being tossed in a wishing well. While at other times, they float upon the air, inspire and make me dare to write poetry. How do they come to you in your creative zone? Racing like the wind, or trickling one by one, as you sit all alone in your writing space. Rippling soft and sweet, like leaves from a tree. They make my day complete, heedless of the place where they find me.
0: So I challenge you today to go out there and read to get inspired. Write something inspiring and share your creation with the world. For when you've touched one life, you've touched a thousand. You have been listening to Inspirational Journeys with your host, Anne Harrison Barnes. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss a fabulous episode. If you are unable to financially support the podcast at this time, yet you would like to help, please leave a rating or review on your podcast app of choice because it helps others find inspirational journeys. If you would like to contact me and leave feedback about the show, have questions about something you've heard on the show, or leave suggestions for future shows, you may do so in one of the following ways. Please send an email to annwrites75 at gmail.com. That's annwrites75 at gmail.com. Or contact me via my website at annwritesinspiration.com. Follow me on Twitter at annwrites 75 and on Facebook and Pinterest at Anne Writes Inspiration. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day.